listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. All good. So did you uh, get all the deer heads processed? I did. Yeah. Wow. That was a big job. Um, It's not as big as it was last month. Um, My biologist, Kate, I think you met her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She uh, was on previous episodes. Yeah. She and Sherry, uh, the secondary biologist, they really knocked it out of the park. They, they did like almost 600 heads in in a week. We only did, I think we're less than 400. I don't know the final number, but it's a lot of work. 400 this week. Uh, maybe 360 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So we are now over a thousand heads from the mandatory sampling area. And that's that's what I wanted. Yeah. And we're not over. There's <clears throat> still a little bit of hunting going on this yep, month. Yeah, the archery season. Yep. yep. And uh, there's roadkill and there's a few other animals that'll be coming in. And mm-hmm. that, I think it'll give us a really good snapshot of what's going on in those management units on our side of the border and then we can start talking about what to do next but I really I really want to phase it and I think Kate agrees with me that we just have to understand what's going on right now at this moment and then start taking the next steps but uh, anything we do we talk to our technical working group and our partners and everybody's got to be talking and everybody's got to agree with the next steps. Yeah. Maybe not everybody, but yeah, the vast majority of folks. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah. Everybody's really engaged well. Yeah. We're really lucky in this region. Everybody works really well together. And uh, I think having Jeff as a, a point person has been a brilliant move. He's been fabulous. And I think will continue to be an integral part of the program he's well. he's very well connected to yep. the people on the street like like let's put it that way in the hunting community so absolutely he was he was a uh, a, a great choice for sure so yeah chronic wasting disease kind of got thrust on everybody here fairly quickly um but i mean i think everybody locally has done well even across the province has done a really good job to get this surveillance program pulled together all the freezers in place and those are all the things that Kate talked about on on her episode yeah. that was that was before before the hunting season actually started i think i think her episode came out uh, it was the, september yeah at the start of start of hunting season yeah. so just just before the 10th and so we kind of got some of that information out on on her podcast and so you were this was the third go around of coming in to process the heads that hunters sampled yep. and she'll come back in January. <clears throat> yeah, no, I was texting her the other the day. Last, the last bit. And, uh, we've been also really fortunate with our partners in Saskatchewan at the lab. They've been doing a really good turnaround for us. And I think she's posted the last results from the last sampling. Yep. She did just a couple of days ago. Yep. So yeah, another whole, whole batch of, um, of clean, clean samples so yeah thank goodness yeah yeah so far so good and i i you know i honestly expect these animals will be the same i don't think we'll find it yeah not now yeah 
no, that's that's good. That's a big big relief to everybody. So, if we can get more hunters to actually bring in their samples already, lymph nodes and tonsils removed, it'd make your guys' job easier, right? Well, frankly, you guys <laughs> did beautiful samples, uh, better than most of what I've seen. Other, uh, I frankly, even some of our own staff do. You did a beautiful job. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> It's, you, know, you wouldn't it, want to hire me because it well, I wasn't maybe. as quick. You're probably expensive. Yeah. yeah. So I go for like quality as opposed to quantity. So. Well, I'd like to see you do 100 heads a day. <laughs> a week. <laughs> There's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm, uh, <clears throat> it's amazing um, that, that you guys got through that, all that this week. So there was a lot of, a lot of heads there in the warehouse, so. But, uh, yeah, um, welcome everybody. Uh, Mark Hall, your host. And I'm Curtis Hall, the co-host. And we are joined by uh, Helen Swancha. Helen is the wildlife veterinarian for the Wildlife and Habitat branch of the BC Ministry of Forest Lands, Natural Resource Operations, and Rural Development. <laughs> oh, when are they going to change that? Well... I've been working for them or some iteration of them for 27 years. And it's been, I don't know, I've never counted how many titles we've had for our ministry, but there's been a few. Mm -hmm. Ministry of Environment was probably the most simple. This one's the most complex, but it kind of says it all. Yep. I always thought it should just be the Ministry of Natural Resources. Well, I guess. Which is not quite there because then mining and yeah, yeah. Well, mining's not part of our ministry no no energy <clears throat> and mines is separate yeah so environment's still separate but yep. fish and wildlife got moved into it did with forestry yeah, yeah. and i went with them yeah 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 so it's a. what can i say about names yeah it's it's a good one um how long have you been in this position as the provincial wildlife november vet? uh 1992 wow yeah, I kind of started out as a contractor. Uh, I decided I wanted to do wildlife work and there were no jobs, so I contracted, which was kind of an interesting exercise. I My first job was uh, a phone call from a biologist in the Skeena region, and he asked me if I knew how to drug moose. I didn't, but I said I did. <laughs> Uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in collaring, helping them collar, you know, 30-odd moose in the Spatsizi Park. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, how did you know about me? He said, I, I hear that you can get drugs and that you're fun to work with. And I said, <laughs> yes, sir, I am. <laughs> you're hired. Yeah, so I uh, got on a plane. Flew to Smithers and got picked up in the airport by a guy in a plaid shirt. And I walked right up to him and I said, you must be Dave. And he said, you must be Helen. And I said, how did you recognize me? He said, you're wearing a plaid shirt. All vets wear plaid. And I went, you are too and you're a biologist. <laughs> so, yeah, we started out uh, working on a, on a big project in Spatsizi in the early 90s. And then I started. Ended up getting a contract with 
then it was Ministry of Environment, and it was uh, Don Eastman with the uh, Research and Conservation Branch or section, section. We were a section then. And uh, I did a problem analysis on wildlife health for the province. And I had, uh, I had the f great fortune of being associated with a bunch of really cool people in Victoria during a master's degree that I did. And they were very gracious and gave me lots of opportunity. And that led into that contract and the gap analysis said, or at least I said, you need a vet, pick me. And I did not get an interview. I got given a job that was kind of part-time and was kind of contingent on some soft money. It lasted for a while. Uh, part of the justification was the fact that I was a veterinarian and I could access drugs to immobilize animals much easier than the biologists that were doing it at the time. And the federal government was, uh, they were playing around with um, developing more stringent regulations for who could drug animals and who should not. And a veterinarian was much more palatable. Uh, training at the time was not particularly stringent. Uh, basically, the senior biologist in the area would train the local conservation officers mm. and the biologists. And so they were looking for something, a, a model of, um, you know, sort of lesson plans and a, and a, a much more uh, regimented approach to using drugs on wildlife. And so myself and a bunch of colleagues associated with um, a national group, uh, the Canadian Association of Zoo and Wildlife Vets put together a course and a manual, and it progressed from there. Um, so I started with the branch, again, sort of part-time basis, and after, I think it was six or eight months, I kind of got laid off. <laughs> <clears throat> and I was called into the director's office at the time, and he said, I'm going to have to let you go, Ellen. I just don't have we can't do this, you know, we have to lay off people and you're, you don't have any seniority. And I went, well, I guess I'm going to be taking my drugs with me. <laughs> and uh, I had some ex excellent advice from a, some of the conservation officers who said, Helen, if you don't justify yourself, you'll never, you never go anywhere. And uh, so I started looking for some support from the colleagues that I'd, I'd uh, met and uh, a few weeks later, director calls me in and he said, well, you know, if I wanted to get rid of you, I can't. I got this stack of papers here because, of course, in those days we communicated with Letters. memos, memos, memos in yeah. triplicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had this stack and he said, I can't get rid of you. So the ADM at the time, uh, or, or a director, I can't remember, um, came up with the idea that I would be a range officer oh, or something like that. I worked for range for a while and uh, hired people and fired people. No, I didn't fire anybody, but we had some... Just in your mind. Interesting exercises <laughs> um, trying to validate the position and create it. And eventually I, I got a full-time job. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's lasted which is pretty amazing. Yeah, wow. Yeah, 
Yeah. And now you got um, kind of a staff coming in underneath of you and yeah uh, it, it it's been primarily me over the years uh, about 15 plus years ago I was given a little bit of a lift and I hired a second veterinarian part-time and we had a few years together and then she moved on to some other things but I had the projects that she was assigned were kind of partly done and I really needed to keep going with them because they were skill sets that I didn't have. Building databases and that's not something I'm very good at. And at the time I had, there was a summer project ongoing, a graduate student that had a, uh, a young woman who was very keen, very, uh, very nice, which is a terrible word, but just a, a jubilant kind of a person who would make everybody smile when she walked into a room and she loved data. And I said to her, what are you going to do at the end of the summer? She was just a summer student and uh, helping a graduate student. And she said, I don't know. I don't have a job. And I said, how are you with building databases? And she said, I love data. So I said, you're hired. You're hired. <laughs> and she's still working for me. Wow. That's Kate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a great relationship. I, I've been super lucky just finding people and giving them a job and having them step up to the plate. She's been great. Um, two years ago, well, actually, as Kate's gone along, we've had some ups and downs because she's you know, gone and done a master's. She's had a couple of kids. And uh, that time off has meant, you know, has left gaps. We've hired a few people to backfill her. And then a couple of years ago, Caribou Recovery came along. Yeah. And I saw that as a super good opportunity to expand what we do and do it better. And the funding was in place for us to do that. And I've hired two additional people. Uh, who both have helped Kate and I with this program, um, but in a lot of ways have done have really changed the face of wildlife health in this province. We now have a program that uh, includes uh, an additional person who is on a special project looking at developing a caribou breeding program. Okay. Uh, in captivity. Uh, is it the one up by Revelstoke? Nope. No, no. Okay. Can, I can't. I can't really give you a lot of details about it because we don't have an approval to go ahead. Yet. Right. Right. Okay. But it's. Um, sorry about that, Curtis. <laughs> oh, no worries. <laughs> uh, the concept is that uh, we need to make more caribou. Yeah. Um, we can conserve what we have by preserving habitat by um, reducing the predation pressure, but we can't make more caribou. The only really feasible way to do that is to breed them in captivity. So we were asked, well, I was asked uh, in the summer of 2018 to proceed down that pathway, and I was lucky enough to find somebody who had some expertise and was available and uh, contracted her, no, not contracted, she's been hired uh, as a 
veterinary specialist to work on that program. And 100% of her time is working on that. We're waiting for approval to continue doing that. And uh, we, but we have progressed along building a plan. A lot of the little pieces have been put together. We have a potential site, but we don't have approval to go ahead with it yet. So you'll need approval to actually like capture the animals and we bring need them approval in? approval to proceed to develop a, a funding plan. Yeah. Uh, to develop a site, to develop design, et cetera, et cetera. But we're putting a lot of those pieces together so when we do get the approval, if we get the approval, we can go ahead and do that. You're, you'll be ready to... Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I think it's feasible. I think it's doable. We've talked about it for well over 15 years. Um, Parks Canada is continuing to develop a program similar um, out of Jasper National Park, and I'm really hoping that this is something that is doable. I think we've waited long enough. Yeah, too too long, obviously, with yeah. South Selkirk's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Um, <clears throat> everything to do with the Caribou Recovery Program is so controversial. Like, I mean, even... You know, like, and we know the we know the predation management is super controversial, but even, you know the people I see, even in academia, like speaking out against um, the captive breeding programs and stuff. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Like, it's like the caribou on the brink of disappearing seems to be the least of people's concerns. It's how we're going to approach recovery is where everybody seems to be uh, most passionate about or how not to go about recovery, so. I, th I think there's a little bit of competition with uh, people's opinions. Oh, definitely. Um, there's a lot of people that have worked on caribou for a long time, and they've worked in their niches. And some of them are not willing to look out of the box that they put themselves into. I've got a background that includes zoo work. Okay. Uh, some of the work that I've done in the past in this position has included endangered species. We breed Vancouver Island marmots, have done so for 20 years. And we have reintroduced them, and they have expanded their range, and the population is supported by the zoo population. But it, uh, it's, it, they're still there. Yes. <clears throat> there are other species around the world that have been saved through captive breeding, through conservation breeding. And some of those are little tiny birds. Some of them are large ungulates. Some of them are, are carnivores. Well, the, the whooping crane in Canada was yeah. uh, saved from extinction from a captive breeding program, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. Um, basically, not, the yeah. The, the guy just kind of like went and did it. They were still trying to figure out whether they wanted to give him approvals or not. And he just started this captive breeding program. And yeah, it's um, uh, author named Alexander had written a book on the Canadian Wildlife Service and told that whole story about that and the Peregrine Falcons as well. I believe they did some um, captive breeding. So, so I always look to those two success stories to say, yeah, captive breeding has worked in Canada with, you know, we know with, with those species. So we have to try it burrowing owl yeah spotted owls 
not sure that's worked quite yet, but there are others, lots of examples around the world, including ungulates. Yeah. Um, Adax, Chivalsky's horses. You can find lots of examples of them. Well, and caribou, I mean, they've domesticated them in, in, uh, you know, in, in Scandinavian countries. And Those are reindeer. Yeah. But they're still pretty closely related. Yeah, to so it's uh, yeah. a domesticatable ungulate, so it, our chances of success in captivity are probably much higher than... You know, as a species, they are not that challenging to rear. I'm I'm saying this from a position where I have not done it, mm-hmm. um, but we have lots of experience capturing them, transporting them, handling them, and keeping them in maternity pens. Um, there are others who have kept them for 30 plus years in a captive setting and have been successful with breeding them. Um, one example is the University of Alaska at Fairbanks Large Animal Research Center. And they're quite capable of being bred and held in captivity. They adapt. The challenge is, how do you take those animals and release them in the wild? I think we've got some solutions. We've got some good ideas. And we've had some successes with that. Yeah. Um, Quebec has had some conservation breeding. Um, They have had some successful releases. We've done a little bit here in uh, BC, not not a lot. We don't have all the answers, but I think I think it's I think it's worth a chance. Um, Holding animals in a in a captive environment means you can control how much they get fed. You feed animals good nutritional quality. It's no different from farming. You feed animals well, you get better reproduction, you get better babies, baby weights, uh, you get stronger, bigger babies. Higher survival. Yeah, 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 you do. I'm a farmer. Yeah. I raise sheep. I know that if you feed an animal well, they're going to breed at an earlier age. They're going to be more reproductive in their future uh, career as a as a reproducing animal, and and I think any farmer would understand that. Do we want to rear animals that are, you know, adjusted to domestic life? Not really. We want to make sure that animals can understand how to survive in in nature. So that's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, because that was the um, that was the downfall of the North American attempt, first attempt at um, uh, in, uh, in increasing the population of wild turkeys is because they went to pen-raised birds. And what you said is exactly what happened is, is raising them in a farming environment, especially like big flocks of turkeys, is in, in a farming situation, you are doing the exact opposite of what's needed in the wild. And the most aggressive and quote unquote wild birds were the ones that either killed themselves in the pens or had to be taken out because they were, you know, uh, 
a threat to the other birds, but they're the ones that had the qualities to survive in the wild. So they were breeding all, like the, the, the docile domesticated wild turkey was the ones that survived and did the best in captivity. They released them and it's like they had no sense of like avoiding predators or whatever. And it wasn't until they, they started um, um, live capturing and transplanting small flocks of birds and letting them do their thing then then the success story took off in in the united states with turkey so that is definitely uh i can see that as a concern of any captive breeding program is yeah i i I think the point is that um there is a lot of expertise out there that we can draw on um there have been other similarly complex tasks and challenges that people have overcome. Um, we we know how to we know how to do some things. We don't know how to do it all. But there's a lot of people that can help us. And yeah. I, I think it's a challenge that the public and certainly professionals can see moving forward and and something a little bit more positive than some of the some of the other management levers that we've got right now. Nobody wants to kill animals mm-hmm. to save other animals. Nobody yeah. wants to do that, but we're forced to do it. Yeah, we don't have a choice. Yeah, and that's a un- very unpleasant thing. I don't want to catch caribou and put them in a pen and make them breed. That's micromanaging a wild population that I never thought I would ever be involved in. But I don't see any options right now. Yeah. Well, there is an option. <laughs> Let them go. Yeah. And do we want to do that? I've already yep. been party to extirpating two herds that I'm not proud of. Yeah, the salt and the Selkirks. Yeah. Yeah. However, there's still people that are picking up animals on trail cameras in Perry Creek and are they those areas? Yep. I hadn't heard that. Yep. No, I've had uh, had a couple people actually um, after the the public consultation meeting for the caribou recovery plan that was in Cranbrook last year. Um, a local fellow in town approached me and was telling me about it and they sent me all the pictures and stuff like that because they just said nobody seemed to be interested in it. But Well, we still... do know that there are animals that aren't collared out there. Yep. There was a, cup, a cow and a bull seen in Montana heading north around the time that we caught the last collared animals that we knew of. Uh, so I have no doubt that there's the odd one around, but yeah, those aren't viable populations. Yeah, when they're those small in numbers. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And should we go out and catch them? Ugh. Try to try to find them first, but yeah, good luck. Yeah, but yeah. apparently, uh, yeah, these guys have said they pick them up on their trail cameras. They see them when they're out hunting and and stuff. So they're uh, there's still a few around. Well, but. good luck to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a tough world. Exactly. So, yeah. so in in that program, what is your role going to be? Like, is it strictly a wildlife health program, the captive breeding, or are you supporting that program from a wildlife health perspective, the health of those animals? I think both. Yeah. Um, I I guess until our executive and uh, the teams that are managing the recovery program come up with direction that we proceed down that pathway. 
I'm doing what they're asking me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not seeing myself as running a a conservation breeding center, but I'm hoping that I can enable it as far as we are permitted to go. Um, I don't know. We, there's a lot in the next little while that I can't really influence, so I have to sort of wait and see. Yeah. I hope it happens. I I I, I don't think I don't think we really have a, a choice uh, with Southern Mountain Caribou right now without uh, taking that kind of an aggressive action. And I think BC can do it, do it well, and be a leader. And I, I'd like I'd like to see BC do that. Yeah, we have incredible partners with Parks Canada. They've already put ten years of certain people's lives into a program in Jasper, developing um, lots of different material to support this idea. They've been incredibly collaborative with us, and uh, I'm super hoping that we can uh, join them. But. Uh, yeah, I'm not here to sell caribou conservation breeding, but uh, <laughs> I, I I know that people are going to want to talk about it and and are going to be interested in hearing more about what what our concept is. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk more fully about it in the future. Awesome. Yeah. Now, one last question, I guess, um, with that. So are they left to their own devices to breed or is this going to be artificial insemination? It's always an option, but is it? Yeah. I, I don't think right away. I think what we have, we still have some animals there. We would, so we'd, we'd match them up. We'd match up the genetics and we would try to keep, uh, the group that of animals that are behind fences as diverse genetically as possible. I think we try to keep them true to the southern mountain caribou that that exist here on the landscape today. The ones that are left have valuable genetic information that probably is very well adapted to this area. I I can't see us bringing in animals from as we did in the in previous iterations. Yeah, we tried them in from the north. Yeah, I it, I don't. That was never anything that uh, was very palatable to myself and others, that uh, those were animals that probably shouldn't have come down here. Yeah. Yeah, they brought them down from the north. They released them, and every animal took off in a different direction, basically. Uh, Yeah, so probably wrong stock and wrong release mechanism or release method. we wanted to do it differently. We didn't have the opportunity to do that. Hmm. So we do it differently next time. Well, that's part of the uh, iteration of learning. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So do you feel now, like at this point in your career, that wildlife health is an integral part of wildlife management? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, it's, I do. Did, was it when you started, other than just, no. A necessity of getting drugs to tranquilize animals? Well, that's how I started, but um, the health aspect was always a big part. I mean, I my experience with 
getting involved with wildlife was because I could drug them and also because I was a pathologist and I could tell why a dead animal was dead. Cause of death was a big part of what I did. My career started with bighorn sheep in the Kootenays. They died in the 80s. I came along pretty much as they had almost finished dying and did a master's associated with that. Okay. So this part of the world is a second home to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, learned a lot about sheep diseases, learned a lot about people at the same time. And that has lasted till today. We still are learning about sheep health. For me now, health has changed its definition. It's no longer associated with simply the presence or absence of a pathogen or a disease. It's more associated with resilience, sustainability, and all the features that create an organism that can survive on the landscape forever. So, yeah. So measures of stress, measures of uh, nutrition, all those sort of holistic uh, views of health are far more important to me now. Fitness, migration well, patterns, sure. those, yeah. Behavior's okay. important too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether or not I came up with that idea, there's a lot of other people that believe the same thing. And if you look in the wildlife health literature now, there's a lot of talk about a broader appreciation of health. Because a lot of, oh, sorry, go ahead. And, and not just of wildlife, but integrating wildlife health with livestock health, with human health and environmental health. All of that is well known now as One Health. And I think that's a broad perspective that we all need to understand a little bit better. Yeah. And find our place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at a, a moose population or a caribou population or a sheep population, we need to look at a lot more than just whether there's a bug there or not. Yeah. Because even, even in quote-unquote healthy populations, that's even defined by there's like you know, uh, diseases and pathogens and different things, but it, they're at a certain level in the population and even humans, right? Like we, we will consider, parasites. yeah. And yeah. then it's when, you know, when you, you have like an epidemic or, or something where then it's just a, a spike in the prevalence rate of, of that. So as long as it's background, we can still consider wildlife populations holistically, like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. If we're not stressed, if we're not at too high a density, if we're fed well, we're usually pretty good. Yeah. We live. Yeah. We can deal with an odd cold or a parasitic infection or something like that. And the same's true with animals. Um, you know, the measure of a, uh, the health of a population is as much about how many babies survive to a year of age and go on to reproduce in the, the world. Um, you know, over the next couple of years as how many animals are sneezing or, <laughs> or have diarrhea, you know, it, it's, it's, it's about how they exist on the landscape as much as anything else. Their persistence or resilience, I think is as much a measure of health as anything else. Right. So er early in your career, it must've been much more just, is there a disease present? Yes or no kind of thing. 
You know, I was fortunate enough when I went to vet school that I had I had some professors who talked a lot about herd health. And we talked about cattle health. I practiced as a veterinarian on Vancouver Island in horses and cattle and sheep and goats and everything. And I didn't forget those lessons and those principles that those professors taught me. And herd health has always been a big thing for me. When you're working with a, a herd of beef cattle, you don't examine individual animals. You look at uh, how many cows get pregnant, how many calves come off the range, how heavy are they, um, wh how do they pay you back into your bank account, um, the price per pound of flesh on the landscape. Um, and, and that all varies with disease prevalence, for sure, but also nutrition, uh, quality of the bulls, how fat those cows are when they're being bred. It's exactly the same as wildlife. And i that's another term that has become more popular now is wildlife herd health. And I, I've seen this circle come around. And so obviously I got taught some of the right principles in vet school because it's, it's, it's so relevant today. Yeah. And some of the more recent provincial level projects that we've done, especially in the last 10 years with moose, with caribou, um, with sheep, uh, it's all come back full circle that now, here am I talking with my hands and hitting my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, we now have some really good herd health profiles. We don't, I haven't had enough time to really look at some of that, but we're working on a, a really great paper right now uh, summarizing some of our moose health work that we've put together after five, six years, I guess now, of sampling animals in a standard way analyzing them in a standard way. We've done some super great work with boreal caribou, and we're just in the early stages of analyzing some of the provincial caribou data for woodland caribou, um, including northern mountain caribou, central, southern, all of it. And uh, pretty excited about what we've been able to do. And all of that's because of some pretty adventurous uh, and expensive efforts from our regions, our regional biologists that have believed in this uh, whole concept. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not the only one dreaming these dreams. Yeah, because, I mean, BC has some, f you know, I mean, at least three, um, four if we include grizzly bears, like very large landscape population level studies in the moose of the central interior, yep. um, the southern mule deer project now Absolutely. from under, under Adam Ford there and um, caribou, yep. obviously, and the grizzly bear work that's been, you know, started with um, Bruce in the, in the flathead and stuff. And those are large landscape scale, a lot of herd health data that is attached to that. I mean, some of the flathead grizzly bear stuff that goes back like 40 years, I think now they got yeah. data sets on, on that. Of he was the second biologist I ever met. Really? First one was Ray DeMarshi. Okay. <laughs> same office, same day, different smells. <laughs> 
And, and Bruce and was just Br- had just come in from the field. So and he, he smelled, he, like, he smelled a like a rotten, or a, I would say a rotten beaver. He's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did, did he wear Hawaiian shirts back then? Oh yeah. Did he? Mm-hmm. Okay. That was a trademark yeah. thing. Yeah. Huh. I guess if you're a grizzly bear biologist, you're entitled to. That was his going to town shirt. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, those are pretty, uh, pretty interesting guys to get started with. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> so what was it? What was it like? Early. It was. A, is it still male dominated? Oh what? boy. Yeah. It's changed so much. Um, wildlife meetings in those days was a group of. Oh, I guess you could picture a bunch of large men yelling at each other, pounding tables. Um, there was a couple of female biologists, but that was about it. Uh, nowadays, you go into a regional office, and there are bright, intelligent, happy young women everywhere, and it's kind of freaky. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. Um, freaky in a good way. It's it's very... Yeah, as long as you don't get kind of overwhelmed by millennials. <laughs> no, <they're>, it, <clears throat> they can it, crunch it, big data sets, though. It's It's a very different world. Yeah. Um, it's wonderful to see them. Sometimes you kind of wonder where you are because, you know, I've spent my whole career being pretty much the youngest and the only female or the only vet. And it's not the case anymore. There's a lot of really talented people out there and the majority are female. Yeah. The guys are in the oil patch or doing something else that makes more money. Well, when you were, when you were working here in the Kootenays back in, you know, the days when Ray DeMarsh, he was in charge and like there was Bill Workington and, and, um, and Anna Fontana must've been one of the first female biologists that came. wasn't Anna Fontana then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 It was that, that name came a little later, but yeah. So that. Yep. Anna, Anna was, uh, my first buddy here. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had dinner with her last night. <clears throat> oh, wow. Well. Yeah. Oh. No, that's... Uh... Yeah, we've kept our friendship going, and oh, uh, we still work together on a bunch of different things. She's still very passionately involved in wild sheep conservation, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm actually on a committee with her as my chair. So, yeah, we, we've we still continued that relationship. Yeah. Um, you never you never leave wildlife management even when you retire, so... No, I don't think so, yeah. <laughs> Did uh, did did you butt heads a lot in the early days the, with, with all Anna? those men? No, with no, guys. Not with Anna? Uh, I don't know. You just I was different. Yeah, I was a vet, and they didn't really know how a vet would fit in with things. Vets could take blood and could provide drugs, and uh, I could cut up an animal better than they could. <laughs> Um, I had tremendous support for my masters that I did on bighorns here, and that those relationships and uh, those experiences have lasted the whole time. I I still keep up with. Well, actually, I saw Rita Marshy, and he lives in Duncan, the same community I live in. And I saw him just a few weeks ago, and he looks great. And yep. He had a good yak about stuff, and he yelled a bit, and I didn't. And <laughs> you know, I there's some amazing people out there that are have kept their passion their whole lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
Huh. Um, so what, what are some of the other scope of your work and responsibilities in the province? Like run us through kind of, uh, um, you know, people, people ask, you get various responses when you, when you tell people what you do and mostly people think, oh, it must be an amazing job. And it is an amazing job, but it's a job like any other job. There's good days and bad days. Um, with more responsibility comes a lot more work and you know sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for i i never said no and i still don't say no very much but it has really increased the scope and the breadth and the uh, workload i am responsible for still the drugs I access drugs and train people and distribute the drugs for conservation officers and biologists across the province. Uh, in some cases, those um, that requires field work as well uh, as part of the training or at least to introduce uh, biologists or COs to a new species or a new drug combination. So sometimes there's research involved there too. Animal care is a big part of what I do. So if, if you wanted to uh, get a permit for handling uh, cougars to do a, a cougar collaring project in the Kootenays, you would have to develop um, an application and part of that application would be how you would care for that animal and you would fill out a formal uh, form that talks about who you are, what your experience is, what your project is, how you're gonna handle the animals, how you're gonna care for them humanely, how you would drug them or sample them, et cetera. And I review every one of those for the province or at least partial review every one of those for the province. It's not just the cougars or the elk or the deer, but it's also amphibians. So if you're building a pipeline through northern BC and you're going to be crossing a wetland, uh, you would have to fill out an application about salvaging the amphibians in that wetland. And that would go through my hands too. So that's a big workload, especially wow. for some of the big projects. Does that um, include fish? Or is no fish. Okay, no fish. <laughs> no fish. <laughs> I got enough on my plate. Um, I am supported by a lot of experts around the province that assist me with those uh, reviews, but it's my final say on the, at least the animal care part of it. What else do I do? Oh, a little of this, a little of that. Um, public ask me questions. I respond to every question I get, whether it's about a deer dying in your backyard, or something on the street, or your dog got bit by a raccoon. Um, we do high priority disease surveillance. That might be West Nile virus. Okay. It might be white nose syndrome. In, in the bats. It might be chronic wasting disease or bovine tuberculosis. And so I'm overseeing those surveillance programs. Um, biologists might, might just say, hey, we're not seeing porcupines in our area anymore. Do you know anything about por porcupine diseases, Helen? 
It's like, no, I've never postmortem a porcupine in my life. I'm really interested, though. Or uh, someone wants to, or I got a call or an email this week about uh, a woman outside of Prince George, and she's seeing some really strange uh, wounds on little red squirrel faces. And she's taken these beautiful pictures of these strange-looking little squirrels, and uh, she said, you know, what is this? It's like, well, could be a bacterial infection from fighting. Uh, Perhaps these squirrels are putting their heads in some kind of a bird feeder, and they're cross-contaminating each other. I don't know. Or it could be pox virus. Are there any gray squirrels in the area? So then we had a conversation back and forth over the last two days about what the squirrel population is like in her area and what potential things she could do. And uh, she's going to report back on that. Uh, So you never know. Wow. So you're very accessible to the public. Um, I think my number or my email is on a lot of bathroom walls. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah, but I I, I take that really seriously. I I really think that uh, I'm a public servant and... uh, Somehow people get my contact. It's probably through our our webpage because it is, you know, I think if you Google wildlife disease in BC, you'd probably come up with my number. And that's my job. Wow. Do you um, <clears throat> do you do any, um, like on the pathology side, um, any um, support for the programs that the CEOs have for cattle deprivation because they do a lot of yeah i i i cause cause of death they have to determine whether or not it was killed by a predator right is that yeah is that anything that you help with i have been involved with with those uh most of those cases they can deal with themselves but if there's one that they're they're not quite uh comfortable with they'll ask my opinion okay um i do support them on some forensic cases so, actually, uh, I don't know if you remember, a couple of years back, there was a, a case where a fellow had taken, or some fellows had taken some videos of guys jumping on moose backs in a lake. Yep. I was sent those videos and asked for an opinion on that. And, uh, you know, what that would do to the moose, et cetera. <laughs> the, the stress, how that would affect the yeah. animal. Yeah. Okay. So I wow. provided expert evidence, well, expert evidence on that. And there's been other cases where I've uh, determined cause of death or time of death or manner of death uh, for wildlife. And that's led to charges or testimony. Wow. Well, wow, that's, yeah, that's a, super interesting. That's yeah. a great, really, that's one of my favorite parts. The forensic part of it, I, I wish I had more time to do. I, I really, really like that stuff. Um, been involved in some uh, attack investigations with the COs as well. That's another really, really interesting part of the job. Um, we have a really professional a, approach attacks to Attacks on people. On yeah. 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 Um, the CO service has put together a, what's now recognized as a, a leading um, group of officers that train other agencies in how to investigate uh, carnivore attacks. Predatory attacks, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that as well. Wow. Yeah. That is diverse. Yeah. Yeah. Very you never diverse. know what every day is going to bring you. Huh. Wow. When you're talking about the squirrels, the lady from Prince George, it just made me remember a couple years ago, I was hunting in the mountains and I saw a red squirrel that it was messed up and he had some kind of a, a brown blight that had grown over like his face. Like I'm pretty sure he couldn't see. Really? Yeah. Hmm. But he, I don't know, he used the force and he could evade me, like, even though he couldn't see. Well, what's, so. what's the saying? Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then? He knew of one in his presence. But, yeah, that was fine. I just I totally forgot about that, that uh, um, in, until you talked about the squirrel. So. Well, animals are incredibly resilient. You know, they can have some horrendous injuries or disease processes and just carry on carry on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i've seen um um mountain goats you know where they had obviously had very traumatic falls and their skulls were like broken in multiple places and fused back together yeah. and then you know you see the skull after a hundred harvested and stuff and you're just like wow wow you yeah. know and us humans come along and it's like, you know, we cut our finger and then we get woozy enough to take the day off work. So <laughs> now the wild sheep program in the province has really, um, kind of like picked up over the last several years, like the, the, um, s sort of the profile around Movi, um, a lot more, um, work being, done with the domestic sheep farmers the wild sheep society of bc has really kind of like i think sort of like stepped up and really actively and, and i know you do a lot a lot of work with them maybe just give us a little a little snapshot of what's happening provincially with with wild sheep um you know after all this time <clears throat> working with wild sheep and my own domestic sheep it it's it's frustrating in some ways that we're still working on the same issues, but, and I know some of my partners with the NGOs are incredibly frustrated that we're still working on wild sheep health issues. But um, we actually have come a long ways. Yeah, like frustrated in the sense that we're still dealing with these issues of domestic sheep farms popping up in very close proximity to wild sheep herds. And I know that um, that is very frustrating for... Well, I think the frustration is more that we don't have all the answers and we don't have a silver bullet to cure, to cure. everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I often get approached by hunters or conservationists that are really passionate about wild sheep and they say, how come you haven't finished, fixed this yet? And it's like, well, you know, we're, we're working on it. And compared to most other jurisdictions that manage wild sheep, we're in pretty good shape. And we have... Uh, in British Columbia. Yeah, I think so. And we have a, a really collaborative group of people that are really focused on making a difference. I, I find that uh, it's hard to offer comfort to people who care so much and want to mm. see the sheep there, uh, want to be predictable about seeing 
good quality lambs, good quality rams, and uh, you know it, it, it's hard to it's hard to offer them hope. But I I do think that we are checking the boxes and we're figuring things out, and that's about the best I can offer them. Uh, one of the approaches that we've I think really it's fair to say BC has led is a collaborative approach with domestic sheep producers. We've had the fortune to contact and develop relationships with a number of farmers in southern BC who had no idea that the simple process of raising domestic sheep on, a, on their own property uh, put wildlife at risk. They did not know. And when they were told in a reasonable um, and educational way, they wanted to do something. They wanted to join us and do something about it. Yeah. Because um, they typically, those people care about wild animals too. And it's, absolutely. They're um, there because of the environment, because of the wildlife. The wildlife are part of the environment. And yeah. That's and they, why they, they choose are, to live here and then yeah. they, they make their incomes from being, being ag producers. Yeah. They may make their income or they may just have a lifestyle that includes domestic sheep. Yeah. And but, frankly, <clears throat> they're easy to raise. They taste good. They're fairly kind to the land compared to some other species. So who are we to say they can't do that on their own private land? So anyway, um, <clears throat> in the past, especially the last five or six, ten years, we've been able to identify one bacterium that actually does cause problems in domestic sheep. Not really obvious problems, but there are research papers out now that say that this particular bacterium, Mycoplasma ova pneumoniae, does reduce weight gain, can cause subclinical disease, especially in young sheep, and can cause problems. <clears throat> in the domestic sheep? In the domestic sheep. <clears throat> Most people have no idea about that. When it crosses into wild sheep and wild goats, it can cause severe pneumonia, and it doesn't do it by itself. It just kind of changes the immune system of the upper respiratory tract and it allows uh, significant pathogens to enter the lungs and cause severe pneumonia. In some cases, that kills a lot of adult sheep. In other cases, uh, it will last in the population, in the ewes especially, and cause uh, significant impacts on lambs that are born subsequently. So you may have... A U group with, uh, you know, half a dozen U's. And bighorn sheep do tend to have maternal groups. Yep. A couple of those U's may have chronic, um, they may be chronic carriers of this mycoplasma. Every lamb they have is going to have that bacterium transmitted to them after they're born. And those lambs cannot function with that bacterium in them. They will die of pneumonia within about six to eight weeks. When I did my master's uh, in this area, we saw lambs die, and we thought they died of other things. We could not, uh, we did not have the technology to identify that bacterium. It's not been since, well, I guess it's probably the last almost 20 years that we've had the technology to be able to recognize. So, so you were seeing lambs die like 
after, prior or after the after big die-off. Yeah. So, so you had the big herd die-offs. And then you'd have this persistent, poor-doing population. Lambs would die. It wouldn't build up again. And I'd be like, what are we doing wrong? Nobody could figure it out. And that pattern has been reproduced right across Western North America with bighorn sheep populations where they die. And then you'd have these populations that for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, they just never got back to the same level again. And I'm sure we have herds around here that are similar to that. Um, but we couldn't identify this organism because we didn't have the technology. It's very hard to grow. It's hard to identify. Um, we now have that technology. Because it used to be called, they just said it was lungworm. Well, I remember that, that was oh, my yeah. family anyways. Like, yeah. you know, when I was growing yeah. up, it was like, yeah, the big die off, the sheep all got lungworm. Well, you know, my masters, uh, my mentors uh, developed that theory that lungworm and bacteria got together. And in some populations that were stressed nutritionally, that were stressed for a variety of other reasons, bad winters, blah, 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 high density, lungworm levels built up, and the lungworms uh, would cause mechanical damage to the lungs, and then these bacteria would get in, and they cause a pneumonia. That's what we thought. We thought it was multifactorial, which it is. Lungworm certainly can cause multi... Uh, or mechanical damage. So it is an actual lungs. parasite, an actual oh, yeah. worm yeah. in yeah. the lung. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And there are some pathogenic bacteria that can be carried in the tonsils and the upper respiratory tract. But I came from a pathology department that was identifying all the different factors that were involved in a disease in cattle called shipping fever. <laughs> Ever heard of that? No. If you're a cattle producer, and you're raising calves on the landscape and you bring them in in the fall, you don't usually market them by themselves. You market them to a feedlot. Okay. And these calves come in from a whole bunch of different farmers and they're put into a big pasture or a fenced in area and they're fed lots of grain and stuff. So they come in, they've never, they've never been away from their moms before. <laughs> they're mixed in with a whole bunch of other kids from a whole bunch of different places. It's kind of like a daycare center for, for calves, right? They're stressed. They don't understand this food. Their guts aren't used to it. And they often come down with a pneumonia called shipping fever. It's thought that it's sort of the daycare thing that you increase the density, increase a whole bunch of different animals from different places that aren't vaccinated or carrying different pathogens. And you get these horrible pneumonias so the pathology department that I was working with was identifying all these different organisms and <laughs> stress, all these other factors that cause pneumonia. And I, I learned about this at, back at school after I'd been cutting up these bighorn sheep. And, uh, and I saw things in these bighorn sheep slides, the histology, the microscopic slides, and I thought, you know, this looks just like shipping fever in cows. Isn't that interesting? So why is this? The missing piece was the mycoplasma. Um, because when I think back what the microscopic slides looked like, it looked like mycoplasma. And I remember at the time going, sure looks like mycoplasma, too bad we can't identify it. But it's been there the whole time. 
Well, it happened here too. Yeah. I have no doubt. Yeah. We just couldn't identify it. And so now, now you can do the nasal swabs and. So now we have a technique called polymerase chain reaction that takes a tiny little bit of DNA from the mycoplasma, multiplies it, multiplies it until you can identify it. And uh, we use nasal swabs, but we've learned a lot. Yeah. It's not without controversy either. Um, You know, an animal can be carrying that organism and we can't identify it. It may just not be shedding it at the time. But back to the domestic sheep folks, they've been great. Oh, that's good. Some of them still don't believe us. (laughs) But the producers we've been working with here in the Kootenays and in other locations around the province have been really, really collaborative and cooperative. Um, We can offer an experimental approach to that. Um, How do we clear their sheep of this organism to make them produce better sheep, but also reduce the risk to the wildlife? And we think that we can do that with antibiotics. Um, We don't have all the data. Okay. We haven't done enough of it to really say that we can do this, but we've got some optimism there. And then finally, we've got a, a group of people uh, from the agriculture ministry, the NGOs like the Wild Sheep Society, um, my ministry, uh, as well as the domestic sheep producers, and we're working together to try to find some provincial solutions as well so that we're not going to farm, to farm, to farm, to farm. Um, In the past, we've approached uh, domestic sheep, wild sheep interactions by separating them because we had nothing else. Um, Separation can include fencing, uh, but it's also included things like um, conservation easements or agreements. It's included uh, changing the type of livestock that you're raising, getting rid of sheep, bringing in cattle or something else. Pigs. That was the big one over at the Steeples Ranch, right? They, the they, pigs. They, that was their idea, not yeah, ours. But. Yeah, that was, it was the big, uh, big yeah. huge sheep operation and everybody got all concerned and put up a big high fence and now all the sheep are gone and there's... They've, hundreds and hundreds of pigs there. Yeah, so. they found pigs were a better deal for them, but I, that was not our agreement, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. whatever. We never did get an agreement with them. But, uh, you know, when you go from farm to farm putting up fences, uh, sooner or later somebody's going to say, well, I changed my mind. I don't want sheep anymore, but I would like a fence. Yeah. So anyway, um, so we're working on a, a strategy to try to create some kind of a provincial approach rather than the farm to farm approach and and it's early days yet but we're making some progress we're so talking you're, you're looking more something like the actual <clears throat> ag producers themselves would be looking after it like they would herd health or are yeah, you we're lo- not talking quite, we're not at this stage of the game we're not quite sure how this is going to end up but we're sitting at a table and talking and making some you know div- discussing some options about how exactly we can work together. Yeah. This is not the way that other jurisdictions do it. Uh, we've talked to, well, you know, I work quite closely with a lot of my colleagues in the U S and their approach is to litigate. Yeah. Okay. Different system. Yeah. 
different Absolutely. land management, different culture, yeah, different yeah. culture. But yeah. it, it's it's pretty nice that we can actually talk. Yeah. Um, now, there were Movi was detected in wild sheep recently, and and mountain goats in Alaska within the last couple summers, wasn't it? There's been a very uh, interesting development up there that they have initiated a testing program uh, of both domestic animals and wild animals up there. Uh, When I say it's interesting, it's because uh, some of the approach has been to uh, use research labs rather than diagnostic labs to analyze some of the samples. And there's some disagreement about whether what they're reporting is the same as what we're seeing in in bighorn sheep, or is it something different? It's very, it really is a hard organism to work with because there is probably literally hundreds of different strains. And we don't really have a great way of determining whether strain one has the same virulence as strain five. And it it does appear that there is an organism up there that doesn't really cause illness, um, at least by itself. And if we uh, identify an organism down here, it seems that it does cause illness. So we're working right now with uh, Alaska Fish and Game. I've got a grad student that's working with them, uh, trying to develop a a model of what exactly uh, the health profile of thinhorn sheep are mm-hmm. up there, and uh, using a whole bunch of, of additional measures in in addition to just mycoplasma. So our doll sheep the same as stone sheep. That's kind of what her, her premise is. Okay. And can we sample thinhorn sheep in the same way as bighorn sheep and then compare the two? And that's what we're trying to do right now. Hmm. So really interesting stuff. Um, very, very cutting edge. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I find that, you know, sheep especially are just so political. Caribou are bad enough, but sheep are even worse. Yeah, uh, people are so passionate about those species, and um, many of them really don't understand the subtleties of exactly what does a positive test mean. Um, a positive test could be a mistake, or it could be the wrong test was applied at the wrong lab, and you know. Is it my place to say that those people are wrong and those people are right? It's it's really a lot more complicated than that, and it's it's hard for some people to understand that a lab test is not foolproof. Yeah. And so there's a lot more background stuff that really needs to be researched and developed before there's a really clear answer. I think to that. Right. One. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I know when those. Those stories first came out of Alaska. Um, basically, it was kind of like everybody hit the panic button, right? Because, oh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, basically it's conduit all the way down into, you know, the stone sheep of British Columbia. It's the only place in the world that has them. And that yeah, kind of got people people freaking out, really. 
Oh, believe really? me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got a few phone calls? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I actually got phoned by a man in Texas who is a caribou nut or aficionado or devotee. I could use all kinds of words. I, I've, I've been contacted by him too. Oh my God. Yeah. He said, you are totally incompetent. I said, excuse me, who are you? I'm, I'm incompetent. He, no, he told you he I'm told incompetent? Me, no, he told no, me, no, me no, I was just... incompetent because we weren't sampling caribou. Oh, okay. Okay. I, yeah, I wrote it. No, maybe it was after the podcast we did with uh, Rob Soroy on the caribou. This guy from Texas got a hold of me and said he was passionate about caribou and he wanted to know how he could help and spread the word and stuff. So holy. Well, we did, we did sample caribou for mycoplasma. Yeah. Didn't get any. Huh. Or moose. Didn't get any there either. <laughs> so if he's listening. <laughs> there. there I did go. it. Okay. Yeah. Man, car- caribou guy in Texas. We, we've, <laughs> we've, we've, um, ticked off your, your, uh, recommendations list. Huh. Now, now the other a little bit of an issue that's uh, kind of come up in BC, you know, as far as the the sheep go, uh, are the camelids. Um, the use of of the alpacas and llamas for packing um, because they're 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 capable of carrying a movie bacteria, right? Are they? That's what I'm asking. So <laughs> so back in the early 2000s, we talked about that. And we developed a, a risk assessment, which is a formal way to look at risk. Sometimes it's associated with health. Sometimes risk assessments can come in all kinds of packages. And I actually hired an outside NGO to do that risk assessment. We um, reached out to the llama and alpaca people in BC and we actually sampled some of them for a variety of different pathogens and this was previous to mycoplasma being an issue for wild sheep or at least our knowledge of it and uh, we really did not find anything particularly striking a literature review was done um, and there are some common organisms that they can carry uh, that are shared with some of our more high-priority wildlife, like wild sheep and goats. And the risk assessment said, you know, in areas where bighorn sheep exist, uh, there probably isn't a lot of risk. But in areas where there's really high-value species, such as stone sheep, probably not a good idea. However, do we have the ability to enforce it? Not really, everywhere. If you're a llama owner and you want to go hiking with your llama, then you can do that except in somewhere like a park. So we suggested parks permits be potentially uh, have a clause in them that llama packers would test their animals for certain pathogens and and control them. Don't let them go free, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, control them to some degree. So that risk assessment was put out. There have been subsequent risk assessments by the Northwest Territories, by the Yukon, and we updated our uh, risk assessment a couple of years ago and added mycoplasma, that, that was a, there was no proof that llamas and alpacas could not at least carry the organism temporarily 
especially if they were mingling with domestic sheep and goats. Uh, certain Lama and alpaca folks were very upset with that. Yeah. And because uh, we were talking at the time, it was like, well, yeah. I don't know if we were talking, but the f- I think the discussions were happening, and the fear was as they were going to be banned from the backcountry, basically. Well, there there so that, has been uh, uh, a regulation created that you cannot use llamas or camelid species for packing when you're hunting in the north of BC in yeah. a certain area. Yeah, and it's just for hunting. Yeah, yep. it's, the only, it's the only lever we have. Yeah. We can't do it any other way. So if somebody wanted to be a tour operator just in the same areas in the north, stone sheep range, they could use them as pack animals and take... There's no regulation that says yep. they can't. Unfortunately, there were certain members of the llama community in particular that... Uh, thought this was a threat to their livelihood and became very, very vocal about it and, frankly, very rude about it. Um, however, the Lama uh, lobby has never come up with any evidence that says that they're not. I have yet to sample a Lama or an alpaca that has mycoplasma in their nasal passages, mm. even if they're living with sheep and goats. haven't found it. But... The most recent risk assessment does say that there is some risk. So I'm not Just because they're part of the same family. They're not really. They're different. Are they? They're different than sheep and goats, but, you know, we can carry pathogens. Closer related than an elk or a moose. Yeah. 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 And they may carry their own mycoplasmas. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, it's it's been very uncomfortable. There's been some very vocal people that... Hmm. uh, you know, I frankly, I don't think have been as professional as we have. We haven't said that they are the source of all evil. We have said there's risk. Yeah. And I, and there's never there's never anything that's a hundred percent without risk. Now there now pack pack llamas are becoming quite popular um, down in the states um, for hunting. Are they doing anything testing programs down there, like in Montana where, you know, elk hunters that are using llamas in proximity of bighorn sheep, is it a concern down there? Are they approaching it the same way? I think some jurisdictions have used our risk assessments. One of the risk assessments as, um, as information, but to my knowledge, no one has been as proactive as we have. And I guess they do what they want. They have to do. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's the biggest risk. Okay. I really don't. And uh, sometimes I wish it never came up. Came but, up in the first place. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> but I, 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 I do think, you know, when you've got, as you say, um, a global responsibility for a species like stone sheep, I'd rather be proactive. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. You know, at least, at least invest, start investing, you know, into research that's looking at the question. I mean, that should always be at least our first yeah. step. Yeah, and I'm, um, I'm proud of the fact that we we created some controversy and had people thinking about it. Yeah. And to date, there's never been anything that I know of. Uh, there are some anecdotal uh, stories that uh, folks uh, packed llamas into one area of BC, and subsequently the mountain goat population came down with a pretty nasty virus uh, skin pox virus that uh, did result in some declines in that population. So was it from the llamas? 
Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Kind of suspicious. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, is there anything happening, concerns, risks to do with exotics? I mean, we're seeing probably not as bad as, you know, some places of North America, like Florida or whatever for, for exotics, but we've had some cheetahs running around, <laughs> um, you know, a few things, piranha that, that was, where, where was, was that? In Nanaimo. That was in Nanaimo. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. yeah. They brought it into our office. And it's like, <laughs> holy cow, it's a piranha. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, there's a few things like that crop up. Is there potentials? Is there risks around exotics? And there are species. Probably the, probably right now, the one in the media the most is just feral pigs. Okay. Um, mostly I think the attention on feral pigs has been, uh, because of the experience in the prairies that feral pigs are very capable of increasing their numbers to the extent that you can't do anything about them anymore. And globally there's a a significant risk of African swine fever invading through feral pigs and getting into the domestic pork industry. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, we've been blessed in British Columbia that any time we've had a feral pig population sort of pop up, we've been able to deal with it to the point that it has not been very well established. And to aid in that, we passed a regulation not long ago, a few years ago, that any hunter with a hunting license, if he sees a feral pig, can go and shoot it. And uh, there is some talk about making that a little bit more liberal in terms of reporting, et cetera. So we have some record keeping on that. Mm-hmm. We're very lucky. Yeah. Uh, you talk to any of the jurisdictions on the prairies or in the U S there are millions and millions of feral pigs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Brian Brooke was telling us that Yeah. his estimate by, by 2020, it'll be a million square kilometers of Canada. It's pretty frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've had the odd animal go feral, monkeys, nutria. Um, <laughs> you know, we've got gray squirrels, bullfrogs. Did they ever get the monkey? Uh, he's never been seen again. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it was like, it was like this time of the year too, as I remember, it was right before winter and it's like, this ain't going to work out well for a monkey. No, he was quite somebody's, aged too. Somebody's monkey got loose. <laughs> I never heard that. Yeah, like four or five years ago. Uh, no, actually, the last winter. <laughs> Was it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Where? Vancouver Island. Oh no. Yeah. 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 They do wacky things on the island. Oh, yeah. It seems like there is a few more incidents there. Yeah. So, so, you know, are 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 any of those significant? Bullfrogs are. For yep. Sure, they outcompete all kinds of things, and they eat everything. Yeah, um, gray squirrels—they certainly push the native squirrels out of their habitat, etc. Are they big and scary? Nope. So everybody thinks they're kind of cute, and a lot of people don't worry about them very much. Uh, we have fallow deer on Vancouver Island and some of the Gulf Islands that have become invasive. Do they crossbreed with native deer? Nope. But they can become pretty prolific. Yeah. Um, 
And I was also thinking in terms of like exotic animals that could potentially like be carrying something, um, pathogen disease that could then, you know, for, for a wildcat yeah. to, or, yeah. you know, domestic or, you know, like a non-North American cat, like a cheetah or something like that. And, and passing something to like mountain lions or lynx you or know, bobcats. I probably or, worry more about people bringing things back from their travels than I do exotics. Okay. Uh, I, I think with British Columbia's climate, uh, a lot of the exotics that are present in other places, you know, Texas, for example, yeah, or, uh, all the things they have there that they Anacondas raise. and the well, Everglades, yeah, yeah it's yeah. not. I, I think we're probably in a better place than the, because of our climate. Okay. But maybe that's going to change. Yeah. Anything could happen. Yeah, with with uh, with temperatures warming. Huh, wow. Um, now there's another one I read about recently, uh, wildlife health issue in the eastern U.S. in rough grouse of of a. I don't know whether it's, they were actually calling it an epidemic, but it was a bird bird disease that they were finding were being very very hard on the gross populations. Probably West Nile virus, if nothing else. Yeah, I can't remember if it was West West Nile or if it was it was something else. But it's um, yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, because same gross species that that we have here that. Uh, what what do we have going on in the province of British Columbia as far as bird health surveillance? We have a, a really close partnership with our agriculture animal health lab. We have two avian pathologists there that are really up on their diseases. We have Canadian Wildlife Service, some staff members there, and ourselves. And we have uh, actually a, a toll-free bird mortality reporting line. Uh, it started with avian influenza and West Nile virus, but it, it, it has continued because we have a good group of people and anytime somebody finds a dead bird, we pretty much get a call. It might be a car strike and it might be a, you know, a spotted owl that's hit a truck and is found on the highway and we funnel it into some research program on rodenticides or something else, or we just document it as a cause of death, send it to the lab, et cetera. We're, we're tracking bird health fairly well in the province. Okay. Um, I think bird aficionados, birders, are very linked in with iBird and a whole bunch of other online apps and they probably know more about birds than bird health than I do. Um, we get reports from people just watching their bird feeders and taking a video. They send me a video of a, you know, a house finch with pox virus lesions on its beak or something like that. It's amazing. Um, are we going to be able to do much about it? We can document it, but we don't do much in terms of treating those those animals, yeah. which I think is really frustrating to a lot of people. But uh, yeah, we've got a fairly good handle on it. Luckily, um, we've been without a bird specialist in the province for a couple of years, and we've just hired a new one okay. who's going to start in January, and I'm hoping he'll be interested enough to um, start doing a little bit more of that kind of work as well yeah. with us. I know one of the, the, the ones that tends to 
you know, from a bird, um, you know, disease pathogen sort of risk are, are wild turkeys. Um, so our wild turkey population, you know, has really um, taken off here in the Okanagan and in the Kootenays. Um, they're not native to British Columbia, but they're native North American species. I absolutely love turkey hunting. I love eating wild turkeys. Um, I'm like, have we got you know, a deal it's, for you? It's great that they're, <laughs> you know, that they're here, right? Like it's so I'm, I'm using the resource, but there's a lot of fear comes up around, you know, the wild turkeys and, you know, they're going to spread diseases. And there was, uh, there was a complaint here. I did a study a number of years ago, sort of in conjunction with the National Wild Turkey Federation, did sort of a uh, an attitude survey towards them in ag producers here, just to you know see whether or not this uh, these rumors on the streets about you know ag producers and wild turkeys and being in all this causing all this damage. And there was one respondent had was completely convinced that the wild turkey had passed on a disease that killed, uh, one of his calves. And I think it was, um, like coccidiosis or something like that. And it was completely convinced. And it was sort of like, so I went to the national wild Turkey Federation. Um, they had literature from their vets and, you know, looked at the scientific literature and it's like, no, I mean, they, in the United States, their studies have shown that if wild turkeys are affected by anything, they're getting it from domesticated um, birds not going the other direction. And there's never been any cases of like a disease being passed from a bird to a cow. So, yeah. but it was just, it was in his mind, um, yeah. that, you know, the wild turkeys come in, they, they feed, uh, in the troughs where they're, when they start grain feeding the calves and then he had a calf get sick and die. So we like, he just said it was the turkeys, right. And need yeah. to get rid of them all. So, um, I, I, I know that's just a little personal frustration of mine. Even when I hear biologists, you know, sort of like, oh, we need to do something with the turkeys and stuff. The public's complaining because, you know, they can outcompete grouse and, and um, they can uh, pass diseases on to. And it's like, um, hang on a second here. Let's look at what the literature says. And, you know, those, as far as I know, what I've seen, those risks just don't, don't exist with wild turkeys. So, I, I, I agree with you. I, I have not seen any evidence that, that turkeys spread diseases. Are there pathogens that they can share with domestic birds? Yeah, absolutely yep. there are. Yep. Um, but the chance that a bird in the wild is going to ma- maintain as a reservoir of some of those diseases is pretty unlikely. Um, back to the grouse, we've actually been providing some uh, grouse to uh, Washington State for reintroduction or supplemental purposes. And all of those birds have been tested um, rough, for, rough grows? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, all, all those birds are, are sampled ahead of time before they cross the border, and they've all been really clean. So I'm not too worried about them. Okay. Turkey hunters are crazy people. We are. I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I've eaten them, and they're yummy birds. We love our turkeys. Yeah, and I've heard that they're really a lot of fun to hunt. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, I have people pressuring me to hunt with them and I may just do that someday but uh, yeah I've heard they're they're really a lot of fun I do know that there's a lot of people frustrated with some of the damage they do because they're such a big bird yeah they're a big bird Um, they're you know 
at this time of the year, they've aggregated into winter flocks. Um, they're moved just like, they just do like our ungulates do. I mean, they're closing into, you know, a narrower habitat range sure. uh, to winter. Some of the most favorable places to winter are on active cattle operations. Sure. Um, because one, they're being fed, so um, they, they can get mixed in with that. But um, the cows are also keeping the sod turned over the soil soft and so they're into that and there's everything in there like sure. you know from seeds to dormant insects and stuff so it's just a good and then there's barns to roost in they roost up against the side of people's houses and yeah. under their decks and stuff so yeah, yeah so it, you know those big winter flocks big birds um the males can start to assert dominance and against people and stuff so yeah i've i've seen that um here you know more just like the deer it's uh you know they're becoming more used to living with people and people quickly reach their tolerance levels um to you know we love wildlife now we hate wildlife and turkeys have got onto that list here and um so how do turkeys respond <coughs> to uh being herded by dogs well it's a technique that's used for fall hunting they use dogs Do they? in the places in the States because yeah. in the fall, like the strut isn't happening. Yeah. So to call a gobbler in using an excited hen call, like that just doesn't, it's not happening uh, in, in the fall. So uh, in the fall when they typically have like an any bird, like you can take a, uh, you know, a hen um, or a Tom or a Jake or a Jenny, um, one of the techniques they're using is they use bird dogs. And so they get into um, uh, a big flock, um, you know, like a couple of hens with their with their brood for the year. And then they literally just turn the dogs loose and the flock panics and birds just go in every direction. They all take off and then the hunter will pull his dog back. And a lot of times he'll be in a blind. Um, he'll bring the dog back and then they'll just sit there and then the hunter will start to do a gather call. So after everything's calmed down, the hen will wander back into where that happened. If she thinks it's all clear, then she starts to say, okay, everybody, you can come back. And then the first bird that comes, oh, we got the, we got the all clear signal. They wander in hmm. to the middle and boom. So obviously four-legged canines are one of their threats you know to their existence you know coyotes and wolves and stuff so whether or not they could actually use dogs to deter them um i would probably say they could i think if they're harassed enough i know when you hunt them and you goof up a couple of times it's like they got it figured out and they avoid you they avoid the area they can't do that stupid. um no, I mean, no. they've been, been around for millions of years on yeah. this continent with yeah. every predator that's come from the place to seen all the way up, right? So, sure. um, yeah, I think they're they're a lot like the urban deer, even like they just realize what's a threat and what's not. And they quickly adapt to that. And turkeys have found that life is pretty good. Yeah, we've always talked about urban deer being so prevalent because we have leash bylaws on dogs now. <laughs> I've heard that. Maybe, I've heard, maybe not, but yeah, I've yeah. heard a few people say, you know, 
if we just allowed the dogs to chase the deer, then maybe they would smarten up. But I'm like, no, because what I've seen is the does go kick the shit out of the dogs, and that's how that ends. So, do that too. <laughs> um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen over your career in wildlife health? There's a heck of a lot more of us out there yeah. interested in it. Um, I think the days of, you know, one vet sort of standing up and pounding on the on the table saying that this is important. We don't really have to do that anymore. There's a lot more of us. There's a lot more organized uh, efforts. There's a lot more support than there used to be. It's not such a weird thing to be anymore. Okay. Um, I have a lot of great colleagues out there. In the U.S., almost every jurisdiction has at least one wildlife vet, if not more than one. Uh, places like California have families of wildlife vets. There's lots of them there. And so, you know, if you need the help, you can find help. You can find somebody who can give you an opinion. And that never was there before. You were kind of all by yourself. And it's not quite the case anymore. So hmm. um, I have a lot more support than I've ever had before. That's really you know, whether it's from a biologist or a conservation officer or a member of the executive, uh, they're listening. Good. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty nice thing. That's rewarding. Yeah. yeah to, have, sure. to have got there. Yep. Wow. Um, then conversely, what, what lies ahead in the future? What, what are the challenges that you see the Keeping next the focus. I think, I think, um, having some of these partnerships that I've got, uh, learn how to help themselves. Uh, I, I work quite a bit with first nations now and having their eyes open to the concept of wildlife health and that that's something they should be involved with too is something I have been promoting for a bunch of years and it's really taking off. Uh, we've got a, a great relationship here with Tanaha in this area. Mm -hmm. um, but there's other nations around the province that are equally as interested. And probably that's where one of my biggest challenges is, just simply having the capacity to fulfill all those demands. Right. Um, it's really rewarding, though. You know, seeing seeing the lights come on and go, oh my God, yeah, we can measure that. We can learn something. Uh, you know, can you do something about it? Maybe not, but uh, yeah, we need to know about this. Uh, this is important for our community. Having communities step up and, and be engaged. Um, not just um, assuming that everything's healthy, just learning that uh, whatever happens to the wildlife happens to the communities too. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're feeding your family with a moose every year and that moose meat is being transmitted to or being divided up among elders and, and families through the community, ensuring that that moose meat is healthy um, is really important. Yeah. So, so that that cycle that includes the people and the environment and the animals is, I think people are recognizing that, that everything is interconnected and that that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, it's good. To, I mean, it's definitely the wave of the future um, are these collaborative partnerships and stuff, you know, between government and First Nations and the public and NGOs and stuff because the challenge in wildlife management is far bigger than what governments can do on their own. Um, yep. So that that's a that's a positive thing that's happening in in British Columbia for sure, absolutely. Now we we kind of touched on this a bunch of different times, but I mean people care, people care about wildlife, you know, in this country in this province. Um, how can people continue to be involved in wildlife health um, and and help? What, I think, what do you think of the key? What are the key things you're yeah, going to say? Yeah, I, 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 for me, I, I, I think people are obligated and have a responsibility to learn something. Okay, educate, educate yourself. Yeah, I think they do. I, you know, it's not just things are never black and white, or one side or the other. Um, whether it's predator control, uh, orphan black bears. Um, the cute little gray squirrel in the bird feeder. There's there's always pros and cons to everything. Um, people need to understand that, uh, you know, death happens. And, you know, connecting with the realities of life, the realities of the life for the wild animal, uh, even the domestic animal. I, I think people need to get out of their complacent little worlds and understand that animals do die. As a matter of fact, you know, I was dealing with an orphan bear issue today. And I know we're going to get some negative feedback because conservation officers had to kill a baby bear. Yeah. But it was starving. It was biting people because they were hand feeding it. And, you know, that's just such a you know, the, the, the pushback is going to be negative and it's going to be the conservation officers shot that bear. Yeah, yeah. There, there won't be the, 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 the health or the humaneness because of that particular bear's condition. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, having people understand that there, there are two sides to the story, that, um, you know, I, I don't know how we reach out, reach to the, reach those people and have them understand that there is a reason for this to happen. Um, I, I, I think education is, is such a big deal. We have Absolutely. not been very good at outreaching uh, to people and being proactive about messaging. Uh, we seem to be very issues driven. There's a really strong movement in, in my uh, division, my branch right now, to be better communicators. We're actually working on a communications plan. Yeah. And I'm hoping that some of that proactive uh, material can be really beneficial to teaching people that, you know, wildlife are cute and fuzzy for sure, but they also have a really tough life. And um, we've all got to coexist somehow. Yeah. And so how do we do that the best way possible? Sometimes somebody has to die. Somebody has to be put down because it's the more humane thing to do. We can't save everything. Yeah, and uh, sometimes animals die of diseases and conditions and absolutely. stuff that 
is not pretty from a human perspective and yeah I'd, that is part of wildness yeah i'd like to see citizens that care um be more proactive uh report things take pictures okay take samples um citizen science has become a much bigger part of wildlife management than it used to be and probably will continue to grow um, trail camps great example yeah yeah if you're seeing live caribou somewhere where we don't think they are yeah or, or pigs share it yeah, yeah pigs for sure yeah. or you know, report those bad things moose with ticks or yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and we've we've taken some steps to um deliver some programs we've got a an annual moose tick survey um online that we'd love people to participate more in at least if we can understand what the dynamics of that parasite are and its effects on moose population maybe we can be better predictors of that of those effects maybe we can even step in and do something yeah yeah uh, so yeah i think citizen science is another big one and that's again being educating yourself a little bit too one of my pet peeves is when i have a hunter contact me and say i shot a deer in the chilcotin it had tb Wait a minute. Well, it had lumps in its lungs, and I looked online, and it looked like bovine TB to me. It had tuberculosis, and it's like, have you got a sample? Well, no, I left it in the bush. Why didn't you bring it out? Yeah. Yeah, so having people not See, that's just go to Dr. Google would be Yeah, great, yeah, right? that, that's an education thing, right? Because, you know, I would say a lot of hunters probably don't know that there's a mechanism to keep a sample, you know, from something that's weird um, and, and be able to bring that forward. So Take a picture. Yeah. But, Take but, a chunk. But the, uh, the education part, you know, um, to say... If you do, these are the things that you should do, you know, sample, this is how you'd preserve it, take a picture, and, sure. and then this is what you can do with that information, right? I think that's maybe that's a piece that's missing uh, in, the, in the education component. That's good feedback. And I know, I know that's something I've always advocated for when people say, hey, what can I do for conservation? And I say, well, the number one thing you can do is educate yourself about the issues. First and foremost, just yeah. know whether it's an issue that has different sides or whether it's something that you need to dig into, understanding how something like, you know, Movi works or how TB works. Just educate yourself uh, on that. And that's been a really big message I've been putting out there about the chronic wasting disease, you know, right, is, you know, educate yourself about that, what it is, how it works, where the risks are, what other jurisdictions are doing. Um, and, and that becomes one of the most important tools to manage the people side of it because sure. as you know there's places in the u.s where their chronic wasting disease thing has gone like completely sideways um to where i just learned recently there's places in uh, the eastern states where people are saying that it's made up because landowners are using it to manipulate um real estate prices Really? Yeah. So there's wow. there's like in the Midwest, there's farmers that own these family family acreages that have the potential to, um, you know, sell them to rich city people. And then they come over and, you know, you, they lose the farmland because it's like these, um, you know, become uh, weekend getaway properties as, a, as opposed to farmland. So they think that the, the farm owners are 
trying to scare people away from the real estate and drive prices down so that their other farmers can't sell their properties for high prices. Like, I mean, it's just, it's wow. crazy stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of comes back to the education part. Right. And, uh, um, I've seen a little bit of it here, you know, people are claiming it's not, it's not contagious and blah, blah, blah. So I agree with you. Yeah. Ed- it, education. You know, I think it is hard for people to find the right information. Um, you know, obviously we have a website, but, uh, there is a lot of sort of alternative facts, shall we say? Mm-hmm. And some of those alternative things cycle around every five years or so, and come <laughs> back up again, and people forgot that they really were disproved. And there's some really complicated, complex issues out there that, I don't know, it, it, it may be hard if people want to contact myself or Kate or something like that. I think what you're doing right now is 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 a great way for people to educate themselves as well. But uh, that information's out there. Just take everything out with a grain of salt. Wikipedia isn't foolproof either. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, but there's some awfully good literature out there and some really well-researched material that I, I, I think is very understandable for lots of different audiences. Yeah, 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 for sure. So looking over your career and everything that you've done in... You're not dead yet. No, in, uh, but I mean, you, you got to be at the... I mean, I know I am. I'm sort of reflective on, you know, it's sort of like, you know, what have I done? Have I accomplished? What Am I leaving anything behind and stuff? And, uh, um, you know, made, made a difference because you definitely have in this province. You've you've put wildlife health on on the map so to speak i i think and uh thanks mark yeah um do you ever do you ever think you know maybe this would have been easier if i just would have had like a vet clinic and just been not treating not overweight in the pugs slightest. <laughs> no not in the slightest i've i made the right career choice for me yeah, it's been a great career. Um, you know, not not easy all the time, but uh, lots of benefits, lots of a big family, a really big family that I've worked with. Um, you know, nowadays they're all younger than I am, but uh, some tremendous mentors for me, as well as people I can I have mentored, and uh, really really proud of them. Um, I I I have no hesitation. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it the same way. Jump right into the wildlife yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, that's good. Do I miss making things better? Yeah, which is why I have my own animals, and then I can make them better. But uh, yeah, there's some aspects of vet medicine that I I, I kind of miss because I really like being a vet, a real vet. I yep. kind of joke that I'm not really a vet because I don't make anything better, but. Uh, I think I made a difference. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I definitely think you have as well. So you're all done with the CWD heads? My role in this is over this week. Okay. (laughs) But it's not done yet. Yeah. We got lots more work to do. Um, To get next year's mandatory sampling program in place. Yeah. Yep. We um, we have a lot of talking to do. We have 
we have next steps to figure out. Um, we've been talking to our uh, policy people about some tweaks to the Wildlife Act so that we can do mandatory sampling ourselves or submissions ourselves instead of uh, relying on our partners with agriculture. That's how we did it this year. Yeah. Uh, so hoping that that can go ahead. Um, it's it's a realm I never expected to have to be involved in, policy and regulations and things like that. But uh, we're going to need it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's all kinds of interesting ideas that we've we've got in store, and uh, I'm sure we're going to come up with something a little different and maybe, uh, you know, seek some other opinions from other people. There's lots of smart people out there that have had to deal with similar issues, but uh, I think we'll throw a little BC slant on it and we'll figure out something, but we'll be doing it together. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know the hunting community is going to be behind you to get a program going next year as well. Oh, and man, you have no idea how supportive, you know, organizations like the East Kootenai group have been in the bc wildlife federation they're doing things right now today that uh just blow me away that they're that supportive of us um they've been just awesome everybody everybody cares absolutely yeah wow i think we've got a a few i'm you know hoping it's going to be an easy winter here and we don't have to uh, resort to feeding wildlife in uh in large volumes around the up around the Kootenays and try to limit the amount of forage we bring into the province from other places. And uh, yeah, that's a whole podcast in itself because there's got a... a little bit of work to do there. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I, I think if people just really educate themselves around CWD and you know if there's opportunities that we can get into the communities and talk more about it, we're there. If it's not me, it'll be Kate. Yeah. And if it's not Kate, it'll be somebody else because we really do feel really strongly we want to keep this disease out of the country, yeah. I mean, province. Out of British Columbia. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, great discussion. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, we kind of wandered joining. around a little we bit. We did. That's what these That's what these are. And you didn't even ask me where I was born or how where I Where were you born? born? Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria. Oh, What's what's the what's the ancestry on your last name? It's Dutch German. Okay. But I'm really half Scottish. I'm really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, um yeah, so thanks thanks for joining us. That was a great um run through of wildlife health in BC and what what you well, do. Well, if I could have remembered to breathe, I would have been better. You were great. Yeah, that was you have awesome. A wonderful voice. You do too. Well, you were standing and cutting deer heads all oh week. Oh my God, I am so beat. On Tuesday, we were standing there for 11 hours on concrete. Ugh. I am not as young as I once was. Wow. Yeah, it's a little hard on your back, but got to do it. You bet. Kate would have done it longer. That's why she's coming back in January. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Helen, thanks for joining us and uh, hope everybody got uh, got some education out of this and learned about wildlife health in British Columbia and the involvement of 
veterinarians in wildlife management in North America. Mm. Thanks, everyone, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye.